All right, pull out your listening guide and you can follow along as we walk through a chapter that probably very few of you have ever studied. I'm going to teach you a few things about Hosea chapter 5. If you did not bring a Bible with you, that is okay, but you need to get one out anyway and you can go through your smartphone. All right, so if you didn't bring one, pull out your smartphone, type in there Hosea 5, and you can put in there Hosea 5 NASB, and that will be the version I'm using, New American Standard Bible, NASB. This is a book on responding, and so if you're called to worship, called to respond, you better know what you're responding to, and Hosea 5 is a good one. Very, very timely. In chapter 4 last week, we saw the death of a nation. The downward spile, the denigration, the downward declension of Israel, the systematic rejection. It went from their heart of adultery and apostasy and it went to all their limbs. We saw last week that they started out with a denial of truth. They would say there's no word from God and there is no absolute truth. And that denial of truth led to a retreat into violence as the way to solve problems. We just throw more guns and more, and more swords, in their case, at it. That led to more lack of knowledge of God. And that lack of knowledge of God led to Israel, as we saw last week, being joined to idols. In sexual perversion, they became addicted to their idols. And they didn't, they didn't fall into it. They went willingly. They ran to it. The shade of those addictions and that sexuality was pleasant. And actually the thing they should have been ashamed of became a shield to them. They actually used it as a shield. So at the end of chapter 4, we saw that as a result of all that, there was no compassion. And the compassion, the lack of compassion hurt, number one, the ladies. Right? It started with a, with a victim of, of the women. And then it went to the next generation. So that's chapter 4, the death throes of a nation. Chapter 5, the... The case has been made, right? The evidence has been presented. Chapter 5 is the the court presents the sentence. It is the death sentence of this nation, Israel. Now remember, we're talking about the ten tribes of the north. The two tribes of the south, which form the nation of Judah, will be judged in another hundred years or so. But here at this point, we're seeing the nation, the ten lost tribes, the ten lost tribes of the nation Israel are judged, Judgment is very specific in Scripture, and it makes, really, Bible very different than other scriptural texts that people point to. Other religions of the world have scriptural texts that give postulates as to what God is like. The Bible does not do that. It's very unique in the fact that it couches it in history. It presents who God is in relation to nations, right? In particular here, we're going to see the nation of Israel. Many, many years before this came. This is all. This prophecy you're about to see is, is typical prophetic of what's coming. Right? We see it in our nation as well as their nation. But it is prophetic. Ahead of time, God's, Hosea is going to present God as a certain way because of how he works in the nations. So you're going to see Assyria. You're going to see Syria and Assyria. Two different nations. You're going to see Judah. You're going to see in the book of Daniel, Babylon. Persia, Greece, Rome. And that's what's unique about Scripture. The Bible doesn't just make postulates as to divinity and what divinity is like. It couches it in real history. God moves nations on a chessboard to show what he's like. All right, so you're going to see here 
how God deals with a nation that systemically rejects him. Once you've proven the rejection, here is the sentence. I said last week, it's too easy to see ourselves as Americans in here. But this is about Israel, right? So as we walk through it, I'm not going to preach it. I'm just going to teach it. So you take some notes as we walk through. It might be the only time in your life you hear a preacher preach on Hosea chapter 5. So I'm going to teach you some things. Here we go. Hosea chapter 5. Now, this is not unique to Scripture, this sentencing, this ruling. Um, We've seen men, philosophers of all ages, point to this kind of devolution and this death sentence. One in particular I want to highlight is Gandhi. All right, this, this wise man of India said that there are seven influences that will destroy a family, destroy a, a city, destroy a nation. And they're very appropriate to where we're at. Look at the seven. Number one, politics without principle. Pleasure without conscience. Wealth without work. Knowledge without character. Ouch. Business without morality. Science without humanity and worship without sacrifice. All right, that, those are the things. And you can almost trace chapter 4, 5, and 6 with those seven things. So what we're seeing here is the presentation of the evidence. And now because the jury has come in, the judge has said beyond a reasonable doubt they are guilty. The evidence is presented. They are idolaters and they are married to their idols. They want them. The prophetic oracle in chapter 5 is broken into two parts. We're going to see the two perpetrators at the first few verses. And then we're going to see four portraits, four pictures. All right, so if you're having trouble understanding the judgment, he's going to give four word pictures to help you understand what God's doing. All right, pretty easy. So the oracle presents it. There's plenty of guilt to go around. Look at verse 1. Hear this, O priests. Give heed, O house of Israel. Listen, O house of the king. For the judgment applies to you. So who, who are the perpetrators? What is the house of Israel in the house of the king? All right, he is throwing two perpetrators under the bus of his judgment. And he says the corruption, the guilt is squarely centered on what we have come to know as the magistrates of society, the kings and the priests. And he says both you have wicked politicians and you have wicked pastors. And that's what led the nation astray. That's what led the nation to this place, these stewards of God. God rose them up, and God's going to bring them down. I can hear Christ saying to Pontius Pilate in the time of Easter, he says to Pilate, you have no authority unless God has granted it to you. So God granted these men, these leaders, authority, and he speaks, God speaks directly to these guys in charge, and he says, you have dropped the ball. I gave you the expectation to restrain evil, and you haven't protected life. You've gone and prostituted yourself to your pleasures, and now you're addicted to those pleasures, and so you're going to be judged. You, you pastor sold, your, sold for your money and your careers, and you leaders, you gave up what is protection for the innocents for what fills your pocketbooks. Your foundations, your fundraising went the wrong direction. You went back to you, and now I'm going to judge you for that. Look what he says. For you have been a snare at Mizpah and a net spread out on Tabor. Now, what are those? Those are places where the leaders encouraged people to have false worship. So these leaders had encouraged false worship of false gods in these places called Mizpah and Tabor. Instead of being deliverers, they became dangers. 
These leaders should have been deliverers, but instead they led the people into snares and nets. What are those? Those are hidden dangers. Those are traps. You led the people into traps. We call this the abuse of power. In our culture today, they had Leaders had abuse of power. It was Saul in his day. It was Eli in his day. It was Ahab in his day. Abuse of power. So when you have abuse of power, what do you do with it? Well, you appeal to God to remove them. That's what you do biblically. You pray to God and you say, in this abuse of power, take them out. So in verse 2, God's going to do that in the Israel history. He is going to give them a name. He's going to call them a name in verse 2. In Hebrew, it's the word set. S-E-T. Now, how would you translate this word? It means swerving. I came back from Austin, Texas, did a baptism for the Hartmans. Remember Jen Hartman and Ben Hartman? They both were baptized in Austin yesterday. Great, great day. I came back and I was behind uh, one vehicle uh, who was swerving, right? The way you might say is they were off-center. Okay, well, how would you translate that? Look at verse 2. NASB says, the revolters. They revolted, these leaders revolted against the will of God. And that's actually what revolt means. To re-vote means to vote, means will against. Re-against, vote. Have a will against. They actually revolted against their sovereign. They were no longer taking their cues from God. Can this happen to a nation? Can this happen to a government where the leaders, these these human leaders sitting in supreme courts can actually begin to think of themselves as supreme beings able to give their will over any others? Can that happen? (laughs) Yeah. Verse 2, they have gone deep in depravity. Do you see that? Now, Hebrew actually says they waded into slaughter. That's a hard thing to translate. So the New American Standard says they have been deep in their depravity. He is saying they are deep in blood. I mentioned Ahab. Do you remember the story of Ahab and the field of Naboth? Ahab, this wicked king, wanted this field. He wanted this prime land. Under eminent domain, he takes it in a wicked way, but he wants it, and he's complaining. I I went to Naboth, and he wouldn't give me the land, and he's complaining. And Jezebel, his wicked wife, says, you are the king of Israel. You take it by force. So Ahab goes, okay. And they did it slyly. They did it sneakily. They stirred up false accusations against Naboth, said he was a God hater. And then they took Naboth and they stoned him, the people. He led the people into a trap and the trap was innocent blood. Naboth was innocent. The leader led the innocent people to slaughter an innocent man and now everybody's blood is spilled. Do you remember what God did to Ahab at the end of his life? He prophesied against Ahab and he said, you will die and dogs will lick up your blood at the field of Naboth. Right, a little irony in the story of his life. So here they have gone deep like Ahab into blood. But I will, it says, I will chastise all of them. I'm gonna put stripes on all of them. The nation has been hijacked by by rotten politicians and rotten priests, and I'm going to judge the whole thing. King and priest are no longer abiding by the vote, the voice of God, the will of God. They have revolted. Now, what do we call that biblically? Do you know what you call that when you rebel against God completely? 
We call that apostasy. Their idolatry in chapter 4 has led to full, unadulterated, unhindered apostasy. So if you're taking notes, that's the first part of the evidence that is read in the ruling of the court. You have been found guilty, guilty, guilty of apostasy, God says. The basis of the divine sentence is that they should have been a blessing. These leaders should have led well, but instead they became a curse, and they became a curse word. I know, we don't see that in our nation. Verse 3, I know Ephraim. Ephraim was the strongest of the tribes. I told you last week it represents the whole nation. I know Ephraim, and thereby Israel is not hidden from me. My omniscience means that when these people revolted, when these leaders revolted, it flooded down to the nation, and the whole nation revolted with them. And God says, I see you. I see what you've done. Verse 3, for now, O Ephraim, you have played the harlot. Israel has defiled itself. The word for defiled is the word teme, which means to be unclean or defiled. It's, it points to spiritual adultery. You have political adultery. It's really spiritual adultery. Israel could not hide its sin from the omniscient God. The nation had become corrupt, and where there is a smell, there is corruption. And the, this nation does not pass the smell test. So what is this? What is the smell test? This smells an awful like, this apostasy smells an awful lot like adultery. That's your second word. Next to verse three, write the word adultery. The clarity of the divine sentence is they went a-whoring. And this is a word that's used over and over and over again. You had a true lover, and because of money and pleasure, you sold yourself over here. You, last week, you have been joined to idols, and it has made you stupid, and we saw that last week, and it's made you addicted, crazy, adultery. Verse four, their deeds will not allow them, though, to return to their gods. They have gone too far. Is there a point of no return? According to the good news of Christ, there is not. But for a nation, there is. All right, you as a believer, as, as an unbeliever, somebody who doesn't claim Christ as your Savior, who you haven't arrived at that place of faith, you're wanting to, you're trying to get there, but you don't have a full Messiah possession of Christ. You're wanting to get there. You can never go too far where he can't get you, but a nation can We call this judicial abandonment. God judicially gives the nation over. Here's what you see in verse four. Their deeds will not allow them to return to their God. Here's why. Here's why God hands them over. Look at the rest. For a spirit of harlotry is within them. They have a spirit within them. They are, we saw it last week, they are joined to these false gods and it has has not, they aren't just weak in that, they have chosen it. They have a spirit within them that wants it. And because of immoralities, because of pornography in their nation, because of perversion, because of prostitution, they got sexually addicted to all of the flesh lust. Truth did not matter to them at that point. All that mattered was keep feeding the wealth, keep feeding the fun, keep feeding the flesh. Sinful Israel had been overpowered by a a spirit of prostitution without any possibility at that point of, of, of recognition or repentance because God and his authority had given them over to that. And look at the last part of verse four. And they do not know the Lord. Even if he were to call, they don't know him. Verse five, moreover, the pride of Israel testifies against them. 
We saw it in verse 4. We see it here in verse 5. If you're writing notes, write the word arrogance. See, arrogance gives the necessity of divine sentence. God can do nothing with these people. They are so arrogant and so torpid, right, dull in their addictions that all they want is their flesh, all they want is their money, all they want is their, their, their stuff. And they have been joined to their idols. The pride of Israel testifies against them. They're not even willing to admit that they've sinned. Verse five, and Israel and Ephraim stumble in their iniquity. In this darkness, they fall. If I were to turn out the lights here and then yell fire, right, there would be a lot of people tripping over a lot of people. And in such, you would stumble, you would fall, you would bruise up each other, you would get hurt, and it would be a problem. That's what you do in the dark. In the dark, you stumble over each other and you get hurt. Um, in this case, they are dead to God and they stumble all over themselves and they are bad. They are bad parents. They are bad mates. They are bad in business. They are bad in business ethics. They're bad citizens, right? They're bad. In their arrogance, they have been rotted from the inside. They are rotted morally in the inside and they actually use it as a shield. They're proud of it. It's a lifestyle and they celebrate it and they have their parades. The nation's own arrogance serves as a legal witness to their guilt. You see this on TV shows. When, when you see a TV show of a court of law and the sentence has been given and the arrogant criminal who really did it just has on his face no repentance. And that proves even more that they really deserve what's coming. It is another witness. It is it is a perfect example of that great proverb, Proverbs 16, verse 18, which says pride comes before the fall. Here, pride comes before the stumbling. Judah, look at the next part, Judah also has stumbled with them. Now, we're what? Verse 5, we've been talking all through chapter 4, and now most of chapter 5, it's been about Israel, the ten tribes of the north. He's bringing Judah in here because Israel, the ten tribes of the north, have become a carrier for this rottenness. And it has systemically filtered down, and they have affected Judah. Judah had followed Israel's example, and they had become morally corrupt. They were in moral ruin as well. Men are sheep. And the sheeple had followed Israel in their demise. Like lemmings falling off a cliff, you can just see Judah doing it, and you can see it in our nation as well. Can this happen to a nation where they can't see the truth as it is? They can't see what is really there, and they stumble, and they hurt each other, where they're just clueless, and clueless begets clueless, and blind leaders lead the blind? They lead each other into stumbling? Yeah. Verse 6, they will go with their flocks and herds to seek the Lord. They're, they're going to turn to religion. In their pain, they look to God to relieve their pain. They need a ninth inning stretch where they sing, God bless America, and they think that God's gonna hear that. No one believes it, but they think if I can go give a token of religion, that everything will be okay. But they will not find him. He has withdrawn from them. Judicial blinding. They, they look at God, but he will not show himself to them as a nation at this point. Why? Verse seven, they have dealt treacherously against the Lord. They have spit on him and turned from him and have revolted against him to the point where God says, no more. 
On top of that, they have born illegitimate children. God had told Israel, Jews birth more Jews, but these Jews birthed pagans that did not look like the father. The kids don't look like God. They gave lip service, but not life service. Again, they they sing God bless America, (laughs) but they don't believe it. They put it on coins and on dollar bills, but nobody believes it. That is not where their trust is. Their trust is in a different currency. Here, the, now the new moon, the new moon will devour them with their land. What does that mean? When does the new moon occur? Every month, right? We have lunar months for the most part. The new moon occurs every month. This is saying at the end of your month, that month will devour you. God looks at them like a, like a rotted house that's going to fall apart at any moment, Right? Some of you are realtors and you've walked into certain houses and you're thinking, I don't want to show this to anybody because it looks and you've seen it and you've had eyes for it. You can tell the telltale signs of the termites and the telltale signs of foundation problems where, where beams start cracking, right? And tape starts showing, you know, wall tape, hard, you know, the, 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 the stucco starts moving outside, the, the cracks start showing showing grass growing up in them, and you think, no, this house is going to fall down at any moment. That's what you see here, at any month now. Now he describes the sentence. There's the details as he's reading it to the court, and now here's the sentence. The sentence is, I've already given it to you, but next to verse 8, write abandonment. Abandonment. Really, verse 6 and verse 7 and verse 8. Withdrawal of aid and blessing. Verse 8, here in verse 8, Hosea anticipates what is going to bring about the fall in verse 13. Verse 13, Assyria is going to take the nation out. And he, he anticipates what precipitates that, what comes before that. What comes before it is not a nation from the outside causing problems, but it's social strife from within. Brother against brother, sister against sister, Jew against Jew. Can that ever happen to a nation a nation that would turn on itself and fight against itself and be split right down the middle in a civil war? Can that ever happen to a nation? Yeah, oftentimes before any nation ever conquers it, they conquer themselves. And it makes for Assyria and for Babylon easy pickings. Verse 8, blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah. These are southern cities. Gibeah is in the south. Ramah is just right outside of Bethlehem. Sound an alarm at beth Aven. Beth Aven is the old city of Bethel. These are all southern cities. What's he talking about here? Blowing a horn means the attackers are at the front of the city. They're at the gates. But this is not the Assyrians. What I believe this is, he's going to the south and he's saying that their systemic rejection has left to an abandonment and God is letting the nation, Israel and Judah, rot from the inside through social strife. I believe this is... Um, 2 Kings 16, this is Isaiah 7, you want to write a note. This is a day in which uh, the southern king of Israel, a man by the name of Asa, went up against the tribes of Israel, went north to fight them. They were given that land, Israel was given that land, and they wanted to, they wanted to take their land from them. And so he goes up, and the king of Israel in the north is so perturbed by that, he actually goes to a Syrian king named Ben-Hadad. And he, he 
he gets power in partnership with this Syrian king to help him attack his brothers. All right? And in the process, the Ben-Hadad Syrian kingship turns on the king of Israel. You can't trust him. It's like, it's like God is saying that's the last domino. When there is this civil war, when violence within the nation occurs, this is what you get. All right? You get a weakening from within. You're going to see that in the, in the images it gives. A civil war is what precipitates the nation falling. Now look at this last little enigmatic phrase. Behind you, Benjamin. Is he using that like, like uh, behind me, Satan? Is that how it's used? Actually, very few commentators agree on what that means. It's very unclear. Here's what I think it means. In war, Ephraim was the strongest. We've already seen his name. They were the strongest. In the book of Judges, there's one scene where one of the judges uh, doesn't ask. It's Gideon. Gideon doesn't ask Ephraim to come to battle. And the Gideon 300 whoop the Moabites. And Ephraim comes, and why didn't you ask us? We're the strong, we're the, we're the green berets, and da-da-da, why didn't you ask us? And he, he gets mad, right? You know, God doesn't need you, and you think you're so pompous and arrogant. Well, Ephraim, in wars, would often send little Benjamin, like the tip of a spear. Benjamin would go forth, and there would be like a tip of a spear with huge Ephraim, big brother behind him. He'd send little brother in first, and they'd, they'd give a whooping to whatever nation they were trying to take out. Here, it's like he's saying, Ephraim is taken out. Benjamin, get behind, right? In other words, there's no winning here. Behind you, O Benjamin, Ephraim's conquerors advance. Verse nine, Ephraim will become a desolation in the day of rebuke. God is gonna take out the big boy. Among the tribes of Israel, I, God says, I declare what is sure, what is certain. The princes of Judah, well, they aren't any better because they have, in that story of Asa going to the north, they have, they are like people who move boundaries. They have no respect for God's command. You don't move boundaries because those lands were given by the allotment of God. God gave Naphtali that land. God gave Gad that land. God gave Simeon that land. You don't go and take it from them. That's, that is akin to theft, and that is worthy of judgment. It's tantamount to theft, and it's worthy of judgment. So the south, the Judah, is trying to conquer the north. And so he says in verse 10, On them, on the south, I will pour out my wrath like water. You know, water has very little respect for boundaries, doesn't it? We know that down here in southeast Texas. There's a certainty to it. It's coming, and what happens after this civil war is Assyria comes like water. Assyria would come into the north and they would come through Israel like, a, like falling into a vacuum because of the rottenness of this nation they would flood in. So two parts of the sentence. One is abandonment and you see the second part here, aggression. An aggressor. An aggressor will be sent. First from within, civil war, and then from without. Now, I love how the Bible does this. The Bible takes things that are hard to grasp and puts them in simple pictures that even, you know, a 10-year-old, a 12-year-old, an 8-year-old can get, okay? He's going to give four pictures of this kind of sentence. The first is he wants you to see the defendant on trial. We saw it at the beginning, the wicked, rotten priests, these spiritualists who, who step up at any chance they can get to speak out against God. What is that? We see that in our nation all the time. 
right? And then, of course, the rottenness of leaders. That this is, this is two people, two leaders who are, who are lovers of their flesh to the point where they're to be judged. And so the first image is that of a defendant. Look at verse 11. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment. God says, I have put my thumb on Ephraim because they deserve it. Because it was, he was, look at this, tell me if this isn't timely. Because he was determined to follow man's command. Ephraim representing the the northern kingdom is pictured as a defendant facing severe punishment. And the Hebrews using participles to show the lasting condition of it if they kept doing it. But what is he condemning them for? The northern kingdom had gone to Syria to get help. And Syria was going to fail them. And then the Assyrians were going to flood down like into a vacuum and take out that kingdom. Judgment of Judah is in verse 10 because of the sin of Judah. Judgment in verse 11 is because of the sins of Israel. But what was their sin here? They were willingly walking after man's command. What did they do? They turned from God to politicians. They turned from God to politics. Instead of listening to God, they reached out to pagans to answer their problems. Can that happen to a nation? The defendant is accused of revolting against the voice of God. They were against the vote, the voice, the will of God, and instead they looked to their leaders. And they were corrupt. Verse 12, here's the second image. Therefore I am like a moth of Ephraim and like rottenness in the house of Judah. Who, Who is the moth? God is the moth. What does a moth do? What does a moth do? They get in your closet, right? And they get to your clothes, and they start eating the threads of your clothes, right? And therefore, we, we put in there things called mothballs to keep them away. But they weaken the clothes. God says, I am like a moth who will destroy you slowly from within. I will weaken you to the point when Assyria comes, it'll be easy pickings. Now, the word rottenness here, um, this is a word used in connection to wood and worms. And so the idea is, I will be like a worm and I will be like a moth, and I will slowly, in my wrath, consume you from within. Ouch. Verse 13, here's another image of what God will do in judgment of a nation that rejects him. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound. In Hebrew, it, it reads a little funny. It says, reads, that which is pressed out. Uh, in other words, a festering sore, uh, an abscess, an ulcer. Anybody have any ulcer, had, had an ulcer at some point? Right, I know, I know a number of you actually went into the hospital for ulcers, right? Um, I have lots of great images of this in horses. We've had multiple abscesses. And when, if you're a horse person and you hear the word abscess, you know how nasty that can be and how mysterious it can be. Last year at this time, we had to lay off one of our horses for like three months because it had an abscess. In, in August, it started limping. July or August, it started limping. We took it to the do- doctor. The veterinarian said, I think it's an abscess. I can do x-rays, but I think it's an abscess. Explained that this is some sort of puncture, some sort of, of sore, and it pr- might have started up on top of the hip, and it actually works its way down, right? A hip of a horse is about this tall, and it works its way down, and 
always amazed because they say oftentimes it comes out of the hoof, the bottom of the hoof. That's some wicked rot, right? And he said, he, he picked on the hoof, nothing. He said, if it's still there, if he's still limping in three weeks, bring it back. And we did this salt thing where we put a bag of salt around the hoof and we did that every day for three weeks. And then we come back to the veterinarian and it's still, we still don't know where this soreness, where this, where this wound is. And he takes a hoof knife. If you've ever seen this, it's the nastiest thing you've ever seen in your life. And he starts picking at the bottom of the hoof. He said, maybe I can get it this time. I was trained uh, in the 90s as a veterinarian technician. I worked there part-time in college. And we had that large animal vet who would always um, give wagers on what color the pus would be as it would come out the foot. Yeah, nasty. That's the image here. All right, now... Listen to this verse. This is of a different passage, okay? The same image is given in one of Hosea's contemporaries. He's in the north, and Isaiah is in the south, preaching at the same time. In Isaiah chapter 1, he gives the same image. Don't turn there. Just listen. Just listen to this. Isn't it interesting that Isaiah in the south and Hosea in the north, their names are the same name. They mean God is my salvation, not Assyria, not Clinton or Trump or Wall Street or Main Street or paycheck or rain check. It doesn't matter where your hope is. Your hope should be in the Lord. Some boast in chariots, some in horses, but I will boast in the name of the Lord. And Hosea, my salvation, his name means my salvation is God. Isaiah, same name, my salvation is God. And there's a prophet that we've sung to and sung about today. His name is Jesus, and his name means God is my salvation. Isn't that good? So, so listen to Isaiah's words, starting in verse 5 of chapter 1. Where will you be stricken again? As you continue in your rebellion, where will the wound come? The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is nothing sound in it. Only bruises, welts, and raw wounds. Not pressed out or bandaged nor softened with oil. We can't find where the sickness is. We just turn on the TV and we know there's sickness. We just take it to the vet and you just know there's sickness all over. You can feel the heat of it. Your land, Isaiah says, is desolate. Your cities are burned with fires. Your fields, strangers are devouring them in your presence. It is desolation, overthrown by strangers. What's the point? You are a sick people. And everybody can see it. Why can you not? You keep looking to politicians to solve your problems, and they just get you into deeper stink after deeper stink. God says, in judgment, I'm going to become like rottenness to your nation. I'm going to, be in, I'm going to turn you into a nation of pain. So what did they do with the wound? What did Israel do with the wound? Look at the rest. Then Ephraim went to Assyria. They went, to, they went looking for a political solution, solution to what is basically a spiritual solution. They looked to politics. They looked to the pagan. It references probably to about King Menanaham of Israel when he sent to a, a tribute, money, to Assyria to get them to come. But again, he says, your problem is not politicians. Your problem, God says, is me. You have revolted against me. Look at the next phrase. And sent to King Jerib. Jerob is a, a nickname for the king of Assyria. Um, it's, it's like saying um, 
calling him uh, King Contentious. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a nickname and derogatory one at that. King Contentious, King Combative, perhaps King uh, Pick a Quarrel, right? He's just picking a fight. It's a nickname of the Assyrians. You went and you got a pagan to solve your problems when your problem is me, God says. So the incurable wound, but he is unable, Jerob is unable to heal you. The king of Assyria had no cure for the disease of apostasy. On the contrary, in trying to solve it, he made the problem worse. Verse 14. For I will be like a lion. Here's the fourth image. Okay, have you caught them? The image number one is the defendant. The second is worm and moth. The third is an incurable wound. That's how, these are the things you know when judgment is coming. And then the fourth is God says, I. Notice how many eyes. I will be like a lion to Ephraim, like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I. It sounds ominous. I, even I, will tear to pieces and go away. I will carry away and there will be none to deliver. This is prophesying years ahead about what? Exile. That's what this is prophesying about. Nation Israel will be taken out. See, that's how, how did a moth destroy? A moth destroyed slowly by weakening the fabric. How does a lion destroy? Right, they pounce and they break bones. They don't destroy slow. They destroy fast. They go for the jugular, and then they drag the carcass off into a cave or a place where they can devour it at their whim or their will. The rampaging lion. I will look, look at how it says in verse 15. I will go away and return to my place until. Now, go back to verse 14. I will carry away and there will be none to deliver like that lion. Now, verse 15. Verse 15 is the gospel. This is where the good news is. You've sat with me now for about 35 minutes listening to judgment, judgment, judgment. And it is true. We said it last week. We say it this week. All right. You, spiritual principle of Old and New Testament is you cannot, you cannot experience the glory of conversion until you face the conviction of guilt. Until people experience the guilt of their conviction, they cannot they will not get to the glory of their conversion, their transformation. Israel is no different. Here in verse 15, I want you to circle the word until. I will go away and return to my place. I will drag Israel off until they acknowledge their guilt. It's not, it's not until you get more religion, until you sing another, another inning worth of God bless America. Right, it doesn't matter how many innings you sing God Bless America, people don't believe it. Right? It's not going to be legislated morality. I'm gonna, it's not, the, the nation Israel will be, God will reconvene his plan for them when they acknowledge their guilt. Until you can say, we have sinned against heaven and in thy sight, God, I, Israel will be sidelined off into the cave being devoured. So, so here, what's the issue for you personally? So to quote a philosopher of his day, Arthur Fonzarelli. Now, Trinity, Whitney, you know what I'm talking about? The Fonz? See, I'm dating myself here. He, he, had, a, he had a friend, another, another philosopher of truth of his day, Chachi. And Chachi came to the Fonz in this old sitcom, 
And he said, uh, he, he's being confronted by the evil that Chachi had done. And Chachi said, I just made a mistake. And I love the Fonz's theology. He says, two plus two equals five is a mistake. What you did was wrong. All right? Until there's an admittance of wrong, not a mistake. Until you experience the guilt of conviction, you can't experience the glory of conversion. There has to be, for a Christian to become a Christian, for a lost person to come to faith, you've got to turn from your darkness, turn from your love of it, and say to God, I have failed you. I haven't made a mistake. I've sinned. And only then can he deal with the fester. Only then can he deal with the wound. Only then can he help you remove the idols that you've joined your heart to. Look at the rest of verse 15. And seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. You, you reject your arrogance, your apostasy, your adultery. This is theological um, minutia that is so important. This is important details. You've re, you return from your rejection, your revolting. You turn from your adultery. You turn from your arrogance. And in doing that, admitting your guilt, you seek Jesus. It's what we said about the table. This isn't try harder. They're coming to this table of, of Christianity isn't try harder. It's simply come to me, Jesus says. Seek me. But you can't seek me when you've got these other things you've joined yourself to. All right, so there's the gospel. The point is you are helpless, but you are not hopeless. Our nation is helpless. I feel like that towards the corruption we see. We are helpless against who the people are voting in but we are not hopeless. There will come a day when Jesus will come onto this planet and the kingdom of heaven will become the kingdom of, these er of this earth. And this will be his planet. He will take a throne on David's throne and he will conquer. The book of Daniel is all about that. He will conquer this earth and he will be the perfect prophet, the perfect priest, the perfect king. He will take all the rottenness and he will remove it. And he will take this planet by force. Until that day, we are helpless, but not hopeless. He works in the simple ways we just described. You know, a, a politician, a politician in days of old was an honorable thing. Right? We didn't even call them that. We called them statesmen. We made political jokes, but now we elect political jokes. Now we don't send our best and brightest Right? We don't put our A game out in front. It's crazy what we see in our nation. In the old days, it was an honor to be a senator, to be a congressman. We are, I still believe we're a great nation with a great form of government. But it is rotting from the inside. The question is, what are we going to do about it? Well, I'll tell you what doesn't help. You're complaining, my complaining, my frustrations, my... Uh, words of, of rejection, that doesn't help. No, instead of cursing, I need to turn my cursing into blessing. I need to study more. That's what I need to do. I need to study the good politicians of our day, and I need to send them notes, and I need to be supportive. And then maybe as the nation sees those being championed that are good people, people of honor, people like the great statesmen of old, like Abraham Lincoln, when we cheer them on and we're smart about that, then things might turn around. But our hope isn't in a, a Trump or a Hillary. Our hope is in Christ. And he says, don't try harder, just 
come to me. And then by coming to him, we, 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 we are people who cheer on the people of faith in God, hear, who hear God's voice. Those are who we cheer on. And in the process, we're very active. But what does it require of us? It requires us to stop complaining and start bowing. All right? This idea of repentance, this idea of, of sorrow for what's happening in our nation ought to show up in your prayers. It shows up in my prayers. I want you to see a prayer that we're going to say out loud. Could you stand with me? This is written well over 100 years ago, almost 150 years ago. It was written by Abraham Lincoln. And it's as appropriate then coming after a civil war as we see civil rottenness in our culture. And I want you to read these words out loud and feel the sorrow of it. Okay? Let, let this be a heart of repentance for you as being a part of a nation that we haven't done our part. I saw this morning on Facebook how it talked about if evangelicals voted, right, our nation would not be in the place that it's at. Have you seen that statistic? It's incredible. Just the number of people that vote across our nation. Now, of course, a lot of the evangelicals are clustered in, country, in states that vote very conservatively for the most part. But electoral college issues aside, if we will stand up things and be a part of this citizenship that we call a great nation, even though it's starting to turn on itself, things will change. But it starts with you having a different attitude in your heart, a different spirit and me as well. I'm pointing back to myself. So let's read this and let this be a prayer that we think and feel today. Read it out loud. It is the duty of nations as well as of men who owe their dependence upon the overruling power of God to confess their sins and transgressions in humble sorrow, yet with assured hope that genuine repentance will lead to mercy and pardon and to recognize the sublime truth announced in holy scriptures and proven by a history that those nations only are blessed whose God is their Lord. The awful calamity of civil war, which now desolates the land, may be but a punishment inflicted upon us for our presumptuous sins to the needful end of our national reformation as a whole people, intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to fill the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace. Too proud to pray to the God that made us. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has grown, but we have forgotten God. I get choked up when I think of that. Our nation's forgotten God. It's actually becoming, it's becoming not only um, passe, it's becoming an offense to believe in the God that you worship here today. That's the nation that our kids inherit. Who suffers? Our kids. And so where does it start? It starts with us being repentant, our part in it, and seeking his face. All right, let's pray and pray that God would, and we believe it, would bless America. Father, this is our nation. We are Americans, but we are Americans second. We are your citizens first. But in light of that, because of you and knowing you, what we see happening in Israel on the pages of Bible history, we know your character has not changed. You still use nations to show your character. And so, Lord, if, if America has to be an object lesson, so be it. 
But you, Lord Jesus, tell us to come with our prayers, things that we see and pray things that would be close to your heart. And I think it would be close to your heart to see a nation turn around. That would be great. But, Lord, we are limited and you are not. And so we trust your will. Lord, may, may your will be heard, not our will, this season of election. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.